Welcome to our podcast here at Hope United Church. To access the live stream of our services, along with other resources and information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. Romans 13, Callum mentioned, therefore, is a very important verse. It's a verse that many will be using, standing on for different reasons at this time. Uh, I've been studying Romans for at least 25 hours, maybe longer, this week alone. I've spent practically my whole week studying Romans uh, Romans 13. Because for me to stand in truth, uh, unwavering and free from fear, you need to not just quote what you're standing on, you need to know it. You need to truly know that the word that you're standing on. And... We are not rebels. I don't even like that language and I would ask respectfully that we would stop using that, even as fun. I don't think it's helpful uh, and I don't, think it's, I, don't, I don't think it helps people's minds in any way whatsoever. Uh, we are not rebels. We are not being disrespectful. We are not trying to incite trouble in any way, shape or form. We are standing on the word when we have to put the word aside to the point that we dishonour it or God, we are no longer putting God as the head of the church. Francis Schaeffer says, an American pastor, if you've ever listened to Francis Schaeffer, I would encourage you to listen to it. He said he's different, Francis Schaeffer, a very intelligent man, a clever guy, and, and not always... Uh, Loved and kind of, and no so loved in many areas. This is what he says. When the government negates the law of God, it abrogates its authority. If there is no place for disobeying a human government or law, that government has been made a false god. And Caesar has been put on the final throne. End quote. So with that, we're going to go to Romans 13. Just before I do that, that just so that we know that, listen, that what we're also thinking about as a church, one of the things that has came to our mind is that, uh, that we desperately, and it's so important for the body of the church, that we disciple young believers here. Sometimes you come into a Sunday and this is full on. Uh, it's, no, it's no Christianity 101 on a Sunday morning. So... On every Sunday morning, as soon as we can physically do this, every Sunday morning from maybe about quarter past 10 for 50, just 20 minutes, every Sunday morning from quarter past 10 to quarter to 11, we will be open. Uh, The elders will be bringing some teaching to use who are younger in the faith, who would like to know a bit more to kind of understand the word and get a better grounding. And that will be for 15, 20 minutes before the main service on Sunday. Uh, that's the best time to do it rather than wait till midweeks. We're here anyway. Sunday's the Lord's Day. It's the best time to do it. And then you can come and sit. You can have a coffee just before the service and then sit and be fed uh, a kind of foundational understanding of the word that will maybe answer a lot of questions and doubts when uh, when you're still kind of early days navigating God's word and we think that's going to be really beneficial and we'll keep you posted as and when that can happen. But I really want to teach you today, not just about why we are open, but give you real help um, 
and to help you navigate this season, not just as a church goer, but as a believer in the world. Uh, also, to help you be able to find a peace as you do so, which is important. Uh, some of you are here and are not fully aware of the implications. Maybe I'm sure you are. Uh, some are here and you are well aware of the implications, but maybe don't have the tools you need to maybe speak if you would to be, be challenged. Uh, just to let you understand, not to put fear in any of us. This is not what we're here to do. If we had to be... Uh, if you leave here or the police had to come here and shut us down, we're not a church where people don't say anything about. This will go... And based on where people are at as to the situation and the virus and all the stuff that goes with it, no, this won't go lightly. And there are much implications that would happen, could happen. So therefore, not to be armed with understanding uh, is a real disadvantage to you. So, uh, also, as a pastor, I want you all to know that the heart and spirit behind what we're doing today, not just that we're doing it, we're rebe rebels, which I say is no good language. Second to last, I want us always for us to be fully grasped that God's word always answers questions. God's word always answers the questions and the deep burning questions that's in our hearts. Uh, and God's word always will equip us for every good work. Always. Always. To help us live uh, and thrive and mature as believers. Lastly, I want us to grasp that when God says he would never leave us nor forsake us, he meant it. And he also meant it in every area of our lives. And that through his word, we're going to speak this morning. Always the heart is that we come into a deeper communion uh, with God. Um, okay, with that in mind, let us open our swords, if you like, uh, to Romans 13 this morning. Romans 13, uh, the, the main scripture that would define where we are in opening, no opening. And this is about the submission to government authority, this whole part here. Uh, the, the subheading or the heading for this morning is the assurance of a good conscience. The assurance of a good conscience to be that assurance, that confidence, that peace, that, that, that rest that comes from a good conscience. And there is nothing like a good conscience to give you confidence and courage and boldness and tenacity in everything you do. It's that good conscience that allows that to happen. And I want to share about that. Let's read the five verses which we're going to talk about this morning in Romans 13, Romans 1 to 5. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinances of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's ministers to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath in him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also 
for conscious sake. Firstly, we must make it clear here, Paul here is not talking about in times of persecution when he's writing to the church in Rome. He's, he's talking, uh, he's not talking when the emperors, the Caesars, uh, were persecuting. He's not talking under those terms uh, when they're forcefully deciding when and where you can worship. He's talking of times of the daily living. And the reason Paul's having to address this uh, to the church in Rome, to the believers in Rome, is <coughs> many converted Jews now reside in Rome's, uh, Rome, Hellenistic Jews. So Jewish people who have converted to Christianity are now living in Rome and going to church in Rome at this time. Uh, and for Jewish now converted uh, to Christianity, uh, but Jews in general, that it's in their nature that to submit to Caesar or a king uh, or anything in Rome is a no-go. It's very difficult to submit uh, to them, especially here when they're, you're talking about really evil uh, Caesars at the time and Nero who was you know, wicked. And, uh, but any time for Jews, it's hard for them to submit. Never mind when things are hostile. Yet we need to see that Paul is saying to them, you are believers in Christ now and we are not rebels. We have a manner of living that is respectful and honouring and Christ-like in everything we do. Paul at no point in Romans 13 gives us instruction in how to fully submit to government over the laws of God. Never any instruction because it's a done deal. It's when there is, Leon Morris says, uh, an Australian theologian, uh, <clears throat> I think he died about maybe 20 years ago. He is writing, as Leon Morris says, from settled orders where there is nothing to distinguish or conflicting. He is mostly therefore writing about their overall purpose, which is that we sit under them. Hupatasso means to submit. Uh, yet they are not the final authority as they are meant to be servants to God, so they are not the final word. Acts 5.29, as we know, says, but Peter and other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So is there ever a time when you should be uh, disobedient, if you like, to the government. Yes. But before we get to that, all authority is under the sovereignty of God. All authority is under the sovereignty of God. We, you have to understand that as a believer. All authority is under... All, all, all authority is under the hand and the control of God. Even Satan is under the authority of God. He may get some leeway, which he does. Thank you, Job. But he's still under the overall authority of God. God maybe give him some, uh, uh, let him loose to an extent, but he's still going to be restrained overall. Uh, why? Why would God give, say that and have, 
give us evil leaders, often to judges, but uh, to judge a nation, but for his glory. Overall, for his glory, but to judge, to sanctify. Uh, to sanctify, if, uh, that, that word would mean to be set apart, to help us grow, um, to help us to become more like Christ, uh, to purify, to purify our hearts, um, to put us through the refining fire. Listen, God will allow trials, no temptation, but God will allow trials to bring more faith. Your faith where you're at the day has been greatly enhanced by trials to bring more faith or to even purify believers from non-believers. One thing for sure throughout history, during testing times, during testing times brings greater faith, but a greater cutting. Always. Never ever in our lifetime, and I, I'm not sure that you's, maybe you have thought of this, and I, I certainly was thinking about it last night, and uh, it's astounding really, if you've not thought this, never ever in any one of your lifetimes in this room has there been a greater purification of the church in your lifetime. Never. And I'm just so grateful that, that God pulled us from the wrong side just about in the, the nick of time. And I'll tell you why, because many of us would be devoured at this moment in time and you would no longer be in church because I probably wouldn't have opened church. There's make no bound about it because we would have been going with the wave. Absolutely. And people would have been devoured here. Absolutely lost. And pragmatic socialism. Church. Never have our dependencies been under greater refining fire than today. Never since the moment that you were born to, to your salvation. So if we just count it, since the day you were born again, if you're saved by God's grace, you have never been in a more redefining fire moment than you are now. Isn't that something to celebrate? Never has your faith been publicly tested more than you getting up this morning and coming to this church. Never. Never. Not one of years. Not one time before has your faith been more tested publicly. You've never had to make a greater stand publicly than this morning walking down that street to that church or wherever you're parked or if you're through there or parting around the corner and getting up and coming to church. Never. That is something to celebrate as we come together. Uh, never a time. Today at this moment in time, your faith by being here has never, ever been stronger. Now that does not mean to say you're like, no, I felt better last week, Mark. <laughs> We're not talking about that. We're talking for you to be, for you to be here this morning. Being excited being here, maybe being nervous about coming here, uh, or a bit of both. But there's never been a time in your life, in any of lives, that when your faith has been publicly tested. Say, this is the wonderful thing that this thing's doing. They're always good. And you are here in this. This is a monumental day for the life of your faith in this young church.
This is a monumental day for me as a young pastor. I think I'm, I'm young as a pastor. I'm not that young. Right, uh, right, right, uh, why am I leaning out here? He said, oh, I saw him here. Uh, it's, it's, it's the most monumental day since I became a pastor in my life. To drive to church this morning when it's illegal and to come up here and stand and open up God's word. It's a monumental day. You should never forget this day. And you'll probably never be able to forget this day as the days and weeks and months go on. But this is a monumental day in the life of your faith. So I want to encourage you just before I move on and just say, if you've been struggling with your faith and wondering where you're at, the very point, and okay, we're all at different stages, the very point that you've came here today is an amazing testimony to what the Lord's done in your life to even be here this morning. It is astounding. It truly is. And I applaud you and honour each and every one of you for that. I know when text was coming in and I says to Donna, who, who deals with a lot of my stuff, she says, I says, she says, oh, I think everybody's coming. I says, oh. Leon <laughs> <laughs> Morris writes in Romans, possibly the best commentary. That's is what they say. I cannot say it's the best commentary. One of my university lectures kept on saying this is the best commentary ever. And I'm like, you can't say that. You can just say it's your favourite. But he kept on saying it's the best. And I, I ended up talking to him. I said, you need to stop telling me it's the best. It's the best you've read. You don't know what's the best. I've not read every commentary in Romans. It's the best one I've read. Leon Morris. It's, it's about way thick. And I could honestly say the detail that Leon Morris goes to, amongst others in the commentary in Romans, is, is astounding. Morris says, when explaining the context and environment and the motive of Paul's writing of these five verses, this is what he says. He's presenting the norm, laying down conditions for living in a state of normal times, not covering every eventuality. Paul's point is that Christians are not to see themselves as free to do as they please. He adds submission to duly constituted authority is a divinely instituted good, not an evil to be endured with as much grace as you can muster. End quote. Isn't that an interesting thing? This is not a white knuckle thing here. I hate them, but I'm coming. I hate the government, but I'm doing... That's the wrong spirit completely to have towards any government. Period. Period. And right away you're going, oh no, I'm challenged with that. You should be. Because that is the wrong spirit to have regardless of who's in authority. Because they've been placed here by God. Regardless of what you think. And regardless of what they do. Important few words here. It says, a ruler, now I'm not going to go through line by line here. I'm just going to cover the whole five verses here. A ruler is not a terror for good works. The rulers being the authorities, servants of God. They're not a terror for good works. Meaning, if you do the right thing, you have nothing to fear. Terror, phobos, it's where we get the word phobia from in the Greek. Uh, but also you do not... So, 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 if you do good, you've nothing to fear. Maybe some of you are nervous today, you think, see, for the first time, oh, I'm not following the rules. 
You know, and that can bring about a phobos. But also, you don't do what they want out of fear either, which you see happening. So it's out of phobos, it's out of fear that much of that that churches won't open. I'm, I'm not here to speak on behalf of churches. I'm here to speak on behalf of yours. No compliance should be through fear. Many is even forget, no, don't forget, just push aside even for a moment your own personal life. When your compliance is fear-based, you know that that's never a good conscience, don't you? You can never have a good conscience and comply to anything through fear. You can't have a good conscience. And we're going to talk about that. Oh, the, the, the modern psychology talks about conscience all the time. You know, as if it's, as if it's some airy-fairy thought, psychological Profile, no, oh, it's the conscious, you know. Uh, that's not even what it means in biblical terms, and we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, no compliance should be through fear, but through the right heart. If we don't own this church, it's with the right heart, and if we do, it's the right heart. You can't, you mess that up, it's over. Also, and most importantly, and this is the most important part of this verse, and, uh, is, is this. They are not to be terrors of good works, but evil. That's the government's role, okay? They're not to be terrors of good works. Let me explain what that means. The government's job is to punish, jail, and back then, even corporately punish and hang, uh, which, no... I'm not going to get into a debate whether you agree with that or no. I'm not against it. Uh, for, for, listen, I'm not going into it. Okay, you can talk later. Uh, uh, the government's job is to punish, jail, and back then even kill them that committed evil. Okay? That's, that's, that's Romans 13's purpose of government. To bring a balance, order, and justice, and protection to the public. Okay, that's their job. This is why Jesus said to Peter, if you live by the sword, and it says it in these five verses, in uh, another way, if you live by the sword, you will die by that sword. So when Peter was in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, and the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls up his sword and he goes to cut off the guard's ear. Head. Does he go to cut off his head, his ear? He goes to cut off his head and he misses. Okay? And Jesus says, if you live by that sword, and think about it this, in this way, if you've never thought about it before, if you live by that sword, that government has got every right to kill you with that same sword, context, because you committed murder. That government has the right because you chopped his head off to chop yours off. Now, if you think about it, there's many reasons why Jesus says that, but let's just look at it dead basically. Peter has not even began to be the rock upon which Christ will build his church. So wouldn't that have been a nightmare if he goes and gets killed right away? So when Jesus says to Peter, you, 
Wrong time. <laughs> There's never a right time to kill. There's, there'll always be a time to be killed or die. <laughs> so when, when Jesus says, you start that and you live like that, Peter, that government's got a right to kill you. And Peter was just at the beginning. What we are doing here is not the works of terror. <laughs> Think about this now. This meeting here is not the works of terror. It's not. We're not terrorizing them to be meeting here. Okay, this is a peaceful, compliant church service. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. A government is no longer operating, therefore, when it dictates that this service is evil. You understand the context of the scripture? So in order for the government to make what we are doing illegal, then they have to say that what we are doing is evil. Or a terror, as the scripture says. And this service is evil and what we are doing is not good works. This here is not terror. This is not evil. This is the church meeting. We have nothing to be protected from. This is no dangerous. We have a 99.92% survival. Callum, Callum is very generous there. He says over, no, if you're under 60, that's overall. If you're under, if you're under, if you're under 60, it's way less. No, or higher. It's 99.2 overall. But it's even less when you think about the average age of this church is 35. If you count the kids, it's 29.7. So if the average age of this church is 35, I feel old. <laughs> Honestly, see when the average age, I've never, do you know when you, do you ever get it when you fill out these things and you have to go to your year? <laughs> Can you remember when you hardly had to scroll? <laughs> I'm at. Do you ever get that? Do you get that? You're like, why am I way down here? Because see when you think 1970 and then you go like that. Oh, I remember that song. It's like 86. You're like, I remember that song a couple of years ago. And they're like, what, 40? <laughs> what? what? Like 38 years ago, you remember that song? Ah, a couple of years ago. It's like 38 years ago. The average age, if you count kids, is 29. When a government calls good evil and evil good, when it comes to meeting as a church, we have crossed the line of compliance and submission. Going to be in queue is good. Having church is terror. They're not my words, that's, that's a narrative. That is now the law. Going to be in queue for pain is good. And that, if you look at Romans 13, it's good. This is terror. Of course, the world will call this evil as well. Hence, you need to be very careful. It's not you don't need to be very careful, you need to be armed with this. Because this is evil. 
You're a murderer. That's what you'll be labelled as, a murderer. You're the one that's causing this. The world calls it evil. Why is the world calling this evil? I seen a doctor saying yesterday, a doctor, does it not alarm you? You're almost thinking, I hope I don't get no well here because I cannot believe how stupid doctors are. Really, it's alarming. Can we all just practice on ourselves and see if we can just get better without getting near them? They're crazy. It says, I've seen two people. This is a doctor surgeon. I've seen two people out walking a dog in the park without a mask on. This is, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not making this up. No wonder we're not getting out of this. You know, I just look at things and I just go, oh. I, I don't even have words, I just go, oh. I think the level of stupid's on a whole other level. Because the world's calling this evil because the government, why? Because the government have sold a narrative that they're calling terror good and good terror. Nothing new, Prophet Isaiah said the same, Isaiah 5, 20, 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Is that not what's happening? Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. If that is not, if that is not prophetic word for where the church is at the day, you will never find another. That's the very message that not just the government's playing, it's the very message that the church is now on board. A more palatable message is preferred. In the 17th century, the Puritans who stood in the world, not quite as bold, I would say, and I don't mean all, but in general, the Puritans, as long as the word was accurate, they kind of were okay with certain things. And I suppose... I would say that maybe many of the, no, the more reserved Puritan Presbyterians today, they would be okay with being shot because they don't see something as a violation as long as they're no affecting their word and they're no asking them to sin, if you like. Uh, but the Puritans would stand in the word, whereas the Scottish reformers um, who went maybe just before them or during them, they were, they were a bit, I don't know if it's the Celt, they just were having none of that. They were not just happy that they're preaching the word. They're like, ah, no, we, we, we're not just happy that we're getting to, you're not getting to steal the word from us. You're not getting to decide when, where, why, how and what either. And this was the kind of John Knox started that thought and much of the Puritans kind of, I, I don't know, maybe some of them admired it and I'm not an expert in this yet as I study this, but I'm learning uh, and getting more understanding of history. But that's kind of way where maybe some of them were at. Uh, in the 17th century, though, the Puritans were holding fast to the word. Okay. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, the Tinker. Uh, and John Bunyan, as we know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the biggest selling Christian book out with the Bible. Um, I, I think there's maybe, to be honest with you, I, th I think Rick Warren's purpose driven churches actually overtook it. <laughs> I know. The 17th century appearance were holding fast to the word and John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress and it's 
But as time went on, the Puritans in the 17th century, it was rejected for an easier, softer gospel. From the deists who came up, deist, deism. Deism, it's like a moving on forward from stoicism. But really deism, the best way to describe it is it's, it's like the beginning of self-help positivity. That's the best way to describe it. It's much more than that, but it's the best way to describe it. So you've got the Puritans who are speaking about the word and sin and we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, and, and then you've got the deists that come along and say, you know what, this is hard to swallow for people. Nothing new under the sun, are they? Uh, so, so what they would say is, is that they made Jesus more a concept. He's, he's a standard by which you could use to earn your own righteousness. But you don't really need him for salvation. You don't need revelational salvation. Uh, and Jesus became more a moral f- philosopher uh, rather than the saviour of your sins. St. Clair Ferguson says, to, for too many it appeared to become a much less disturbing gospel. Isn't that so true even today? Let's preach a different message. It's quite disturbing you keep on talking about sin. I'm looking for something a bit less disturbing. What's the church done in this season predominantly? They have took on board the government's narrative and turned what the government's doing in stop calling terror And they've adapted it. And amongst Romans 13, to look like loving their neighbour. Really? Well, we're wearing a mask, we're loving our neighbour. Look, they're putting something on you. They're they're opening B&Q and the range and pubs were open no long ago. They're opening them. The range, I don't mean the golf range. I mean the range that pretends to sell food. So it can stay open. Listen, I'm a, listen, I'm not against the rain staying home. Everything should be home. But what they've done is, is then the church has then adapted to this narrative and I understand it at the beginning. And uh, I'll talk about that briefly in a minute. So what the church has done is, they've rather than says, you're turning good into evil and evil into good. We'll adapt. We'll adapt what you're calling terror and we'll use it for a good. See, you can understand the subtle, see the subtleties here, why people would buy any of that. You see, this is no cut and dry here. So they wear a mask and say, well, I'm but the devil intended for harm, I'm doing for good. Misquoting and then using scripture. So they put on masks that is to instill compliance. The mask is to instill compliance. Even the experts say that. They don't work, but it, it gives people a sense of fear and a sense of safety. So the church put on masks. They, they, they put on the thing that was to instill terror and then they're using it for good. You see how it's getting messed up? They have called it good and loving your neighbour. They have closed the church under the banner of good. When it's not good, it's been flipped. How in good conscience there can they do that? It astounds me how in good conscience they can do it. But I can't judge a man's conscience. I'm just astounded how they could. 
based on truth. The government's role, therefore, is appointed by God if they do right, and good is to punish evil. That means punishing criminals. Sometimes they won't, and we have to accept that, yeah, as believers. See, this is the context here. We have to accept that sometimes, and you've maybe been in that uh, situation, or you've maybe read about it, you know, where somebody gets a really lenient sentence and you think, I'm not happy, and you hear families, that's there, you hear families saying, terrible, they murdered my son, and they get community service, maybe some, but, but they were out of jail in two years. Right, okay. In the context of, in the context of Romans 13, as believers, we've no argue with that. You just suck that up, that's not your argument. They're an authority and you need to just accept that. Whatever the sentence is. This is the context of Romans 13. That if they'd done that, then you would need to just accept that. If they choose to criminalise somebody, you accept it. And if they choose not, then you accept that as the ruling government. That is no where believers should question. We are not the appointed authority or judge. Therefore, we accept that. So basically, to be arrested for having church. To be arrested for having church is to say the government is doing God's will but arresting us for doing evil. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. And you cannot get away from that's what it's saying. And I'd be willing to debate with anybody on that. That's what it's saying. And the evil, if, that's, if, if the government's operating in the right context, and that evil is therefore having a church service because they've made it a legal and a criminal offence to do so. Hence the government, as his Matthew Henry says, is perverting good. They're actually perverting good now. And therefore it is worth the persecution then that comes or may come from the government than to not do good and act like we are. If I get the jail, I will not resist. I will accept it. I will not speak. I will not... I may, I may have a conversation. I won't resist it in any way, shape or form because I'm submitting to the authority. Completely different thing. I would accept it. I will honour it. Doesn't mean I'm agreeing with it. Or am I willing to stop good and call it evil? I'm not prepared to do that. But I'm willing to go to jail for it. You get the picture now why martyrs accepted death. You ever ask the question, why did they so easily accept death? That's why they accepted death. Because they stood in truth but they would not resist the government law. And you look through history at the martyrs, Scottish martyrs, you look at the apostles. They never bowed to the evil, but they did bow to the outcome. That's how we live. We bow to the outcome, but you don't, be, you don't call evil good and good evil. 
This is why making going to church illegal is in definition calling it evil. By making church illegal in the context then is making it evil. It is the government that has defined good and now the whole world is. All the liberals are calling good terror and terror good. To the point, to the point that government are now about to pay people by calling out what they see as terror and evil. It was on GMTV, Ben Shepherd and somebody the other day. He got off people, didn't you? Oof. Talk about getting off people. They done a thing on the news. It was it's on that one of these. I don't watch TV anyway. On afternoon TV and uh, but I just seen it on on media and they were the thing was is should the government? It's as if it's as if they're a trial run. It's like a survey for the government to see if they can get away with it. Uh, and the thing was is if should should people be getting paid for snitching on their neighbour? Because that's what the government uh, really paid. How crazy is that? Crazy. Who would have thought going to Tesco with a mask is a force of good? And coming to church to sit under the word of your brothers and sisters in Christ is an act of terror. Is Romans 13 starting to make a bit clearer sense to you now? Now, 10 months ago, that was different because we also believed it was for good. Yeah? I looked at a post that I wrote in March and I'm, I'm like, get rid of that. <laughs> you know, I, I told, I'm like, I can't believe what I've said because I was buying into the narrative and I'm like, there are people dropping like flies, I hear it, and, you know, they're getting sprayed and. <laughs> what? My mind being manipulated. I'm like, get that posting. And I'm like, no. Because I believe at the time what I was doing is, is and what we were doing is, is, was truly adhering to Romans 13 and trusting the authorities. That's what we did. And that was right. And I, I had. That only happened for me for about three or four weeks, max. I, I don't even think it was as long as that, to be honest. I think it was about three days. But anyway, to, we'll maybe see a wee bit longer than that, a few weeks. But we still shot for 14 weeks. Why did we shop for 14 weeks? Because I believe we were still, I believe the government at that point did not, were not transferring terror for good and good for terror. I think they were just navigating that. Many of them were just navigating that, blinded. Yeah, but navigating it. Until, as Callum says, and people have says, until after a period of time you get to see the statistics and where it's at, and you go, oh, there's something going on here. You know, and here we are in, here we are, it was only three weeks to stop the curve, and here we are in January. So it was right to submit, and it would have been wrong not to. Didn't need to agree with it, but we submitted, we went online, nobody was in church for 14 weeks, and I preached behind here in front of your camera. And that was even when we knew, but it was also right to submit due to honouring the government and the difficulty they were facing. However, now they are blatantly changing things in numbers and figures, blatantly. 
It's not even anything. It's just blatant now. It's, it doesn't matter. They can almost say anything now because it's been bought. It's a brave new world. It's all been bought in now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's no changing now. <laughs> so they can, they can actually say, unfortunately, so-and-so were tested. 120,000 were tested. Unfortunately, there were 40,000 positive. Sadly, that's always the word at the start. Sadly, 68 people died with a positive test. Well, what did they die what did they die of? Sorry? Journalists asked them what they died of. We're not telling you what they died of. Car crash, it doesn't matter. They get a positive test when they arrive in the hospital. This changes everything. And this is the facts and that you understand. But still, you're kind of, you know, up until then, you're saying, you know what? I have to adhere to Romans 13. Now, based on that, based on making this illegal, making this evil and a force of terror, it's now a, you would now have to misuse and dishonour God and, and dishonour the crown and dishonour the word of God to a dirty Romans 13 as if it was meaning this. Many people will not be at church today. In fact, I think, Calm, you're right. I'm not sure there'll be any churches. I don't know any churches in Scotland that's home today. But then again, they don't know we don't either. <laughs> Nearly no one will be. Either duty, I believe, taking this verse beyond the proper context, or duty fear, or, or the government consequences, which trust me many, many people's reasons. However, I truly believe that they are not being honest about that. And their conscience. They're using either Romans 13 beyond the context, or buying into the lies, or simply are no free. The latter really is the biggie. The conscience thing. Also from family pressure and fear of what they believe. And I've said I'm okay with that struggle. I'm okay with that struggle as a pastor. You have to be okay with people sanctifying process and what they're no free from. Okay. No, people are not yet free for their family. Everything takes time. No, you might just be no long saved and you're flung into this and you're thinking, my faith's not got the capacity because I'm no free yet. Or you may, you may have been a believer for a long time, but there's areas that you've never addressed. This is a wonderful thing about this. And I'm okay with that, that level of unwillingness to not allow, it's, it's, that level of fear is okay. But no unwilling. No unwilling. Unwilling, you have to go somewhere with your conscience. You have to go somewhere with your conscience. And time's really gone here, but if you can just bear with me, you have nowhere else to go anyway. I have. I have. I've got the range to go to. <laughs> B&M. Walking through the wilderness is okay, people, okay? You're here, so not necessarily, well, maybe an extent, depends on where you're at in your heart, as far as conscience goes, and this is, I'm just going to bring this in with this whole conscious thing. Walking through the wilderness is okay, okay? Camping in a verse of scripture to avoid fear of consequences is not okay. Big problem here, this is now really challenging your conscience. Many, many people will use a scripture verse to camp rather than walk through the wilderness towards the promised land. So they use a scripture verse to camp and then put it on you thinking you don't know. 
There is not a single person. This is a bold statement here. Uh, there is not a single person who is struggling with the acceptance of this that I don't know what's going on with them in my world. Do you hear that? That's a bold statement. There's not a single person who I pastor, not one, who I don't know what their struggle is with camping. Doesn't mean to say that you won't be patient with them. But there's a big difference between being patient and creating a more palatable gospel and then they put that on you. So we must be in good conscience about things. When it says rulers here, it means God's servants, not tyrants. The position is not a serving of God. This position is not a servant of, of God and the people. Uh, if it's not a servant of God, sorry. If this is not a servant of God and people, then it's a uh, servant of God and people, then it's abuse. However, even still, that does not permit rogue behaviour. Again, we should as much as depends on us to live at peace with one another and be an example to that government that we could win them. Always. So closing for the time, you've given the government as much help and support and honour and respect, praying continually and still. But when you know me closing here is no longer been a positive force for, for your salvation, your understanding, your good, but it's actually just becoming part of your negative evil narrative. And you can no longer do it, good conscience. That's what we have done up to now. Because when we've done that good, it didn't bring fear nor dishonour. We as believers are no more above the law than the word is. That's also what Paul's saying here. Many will say that the church thinks it's a law in itself. This is what will happen. If somebody stops us, we get banned or whatever happens, they'll say, you think you're above the law? And you say, no, 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 we don't. We just think that the church is above the terror that you're putting on it. It's not the same. We are under the same laws. And our duty is to fulfill those laws as believers. Do I have any fear today? Not a bit. That's no arrogance. No, I don't. Why? Because I don't believe I'm dishonouring Romans 13. And I've searched my conscience. People say to me, Mark, you're really courageous. I don't, I don't see it as that. I just see it as having a good conscience. If you want to know a courageous person, go and, go and find somebody with a good conscience. Are you lacking courage? Check your conscience. Check your conscience if you're lacking courage. Hebrews 10.25, therefore, must be for me uncompromising in, in the past. It wasn't it because this virus and other things could happen and we were believing it. So you would not, if this was deadly, we wouldn't be here. We just wouldn't be here in good conscience. In good conscience, I couldn't be. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of together in the manner of some are, but exhorting one another so much as the day passes. Ekatalaipo. Ekatalaipo. 
Not forsaken is the same word that Jesus used on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like a complete abandon. It's a strong word. If I was fearful, I would not be honouring that word at all. And if you're here and you're fearful, it's a conscience problem. I would either be here through defiance, which will sooner or later bring fear, because I'm no free. People have said, well, it takes courage. I think it's way less about that and way more about having a clear conscience. I'd say to you all, a clear conscience will not be gripped by fear. So you will have courage by design. By how you love, how you live will be your courage. I don't fear authority because I believe we are now doing the good thing. It's that simple. And no matter what they call good and what they call terror, I know to close is to allow the government to force us to compromise the word and put them above the word and make them the author as we have been commanded to meet. Commanded. Do not forsake the assembling of one another. Ecclesia. Together in one place. None of us would have argued that that was not something you would reconsider if this was as deadly as what they're saying. I said that there's never been a time in any of our lives as a close when we have been asked to stand in the truth in his word. And that has caused probably a lot of soul searching, isn't it? For every single one of us. There's been a lot of soul searching. Do I come? Where do I go? Where do I stand? I do not believe it's been easy for some. And as a pastor, as I say there, I could tell you without doubt what each and every person's almost struggle could be. Make no bone, I, I, I don't say that arrogantly. As a pastor of this church, as a shepherd of this church, know the senior shepherd, I would know the heart and so I would know the battle in every single person. I know you don't think I know, but I do. I would know who you're free from, who you're no free from. I know when you're, I, I know when you're camping in verses. Just because I don't say it doesn't mean you, you don't know it. No, I know when you're camping on a verse. I know when believers camp in a verse so they don't need to move on to the next verse. When they camp in a verse to make them feel more comfortable in the wilderness. Let's pitch a tent here. No. However, as a pastor and, a, and, 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 to, and to be in good conscience, and as much as it's right to be patient with people here, absolutely. However, as long as that patience doesn't become a placebo for camping, when that, when, that, when that patience becomes a placebo for people, and a placebo would be like a, a, a pretense help that's not really helping, when you, when, you start to become a, when you start to allow that to become a placebo for people, so basically you comfort their unwillingness. You're trying to get them to have a clear conscience. No comfort their unwillingness. I think when we make it comfortable for people to camp in verses, then we're no longer being true to our own conscience. And therefore we're no living in the truth ourselves because we don't want to talk about that or help people with that. This, of course, doesn't just apply here, but in every walk of life. Yet often believers use a shallow form of righteousness conscience to justify avoidance. And I believe that's happening a lot. It may be happening in your life. It's certainly happening in the overall church. Or create a sort of false love to avoid pain. This for me is the glue that either binds our convictions or makes them so easily broken and compromised. 
and looking in the mirror intently at your conscience. I believe we are doing a huge disservice to people, to God and to the church, by either approaching verse 5 of Romans 13, either shallowly or with a lack of humility and truth in our own personal life. Verse 5, therefore, you must be a subject not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience sake. Not only wrath, meaning we do not, we, do, we don't do things just through fear, but through good conscience. You don't just do it through fear, but good conscience. And your conscience can really become amputated when you start doing things through fear. Because you fear the wrath. So I, we, I could close the church because I feared the wrath. But could I do it with good conscience? No. I need to go somewhere. I need to go somewhere. I need, I need to go somewhere in my mind and heart. I need, I need to go somewhere in how I think. Doing something through fear disguised as conviction is a very dangerous game to play in your soul. I'll say it again. Doing something through fear disguised as conviction is a dangerous game to play in your very soul. That, if you ever want to read about the conscience, you'd read Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians ever to live. When you hear I'm talking about conscience, it's astounding. Again, let me quote Leon Morris. The believer may have to refuse obedience on the grounds of conscience. This is what the members of the early church did in Acts 5.29. Conscience. This is he continues. Conscience at one and the same time obliges us to be obedient. But sets the limit to that obedience. End quote. The Greek word. Sunaidesis. Sunaidesis. And it, it means to dis. It means to distinguish in the soul between right and wrong, good and bad, truth and false. To be prompted and convicted to give up one thing for the greater. You see, it's not a light subject. I think for me the best and maybe the deepest, most meaningful definition is this. Not to sell either yourself or others a lesser good disguised as a greater good in an attempt to avoid guilt. Somebody's like, what? I'm going to say it again. Not to sell either yourself or others a lesser good disguised as a greater good in an attempt to avoid guilt. Simply put by John MacArthur, to ignore our conscience is to ignore oneself, end quote. The word suna, sunidesis is used many times in the word, I will close here. I won't get into them. Acts 2, 24, 16, 1 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 1, 12, Hebrews 13, 8, 1 Peter 3, 16, it's everywhere. There are lots more, but always in a way that challenges both guilt and purity of heart and calls for us to walk with a cleansed heart and a sound mind and faith and truth. 
Of course, we can deceive ourselves with our sinful hearts, so we also need to look not just at our conscience. Here's the problem. My conscience is telling me, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The heart's wicked above all things. Please don't go there. Does it line up with the word? Because your conscience could sell you anything. However, the right mind we will find, with the right mind we will find our true conscience through his word. Hence why we must submit to the holy God's word. When I hear people overemphasizing one verse over the other. Guaranteed when you're overemphasizing one verse over the other or being overly promotive of an action over another, it's almost always a sign of trying to sell a greater good to avoid the truth. And you're trying to hide your conscience. You're trying to drown out your conscience. Problem is with that stuff, as Jonathan Edwards says, if you don't keep exercising that conscience, it just gets duller and duller and duller and duller until you don't feel anything. It's in a sense, as John MacArthur says, it stops the light entering fully illuminating your life. See, this is a problem. You don't live in a good conscience. You should be grateful that you've been challenged with so much and saying, am I living in good conscience here? Or am I creating a lesser good to justify my fear and why I'm not dealing with something? The more we allow the work to touch all areas of our life, the stronger that conscience grows. Yeah? So the areas of your life that's dark, sinful, is the areas that you're not allowing the work to penetrate because you're juggling a fake greater good. And the more time we allow the word to run through our very veins, the more it cleanses our unrighteousness. I heard John MacArthur say, it's a sharp instrument. You don't want to blunt it. Your conscience is a sharp instrument. You don't want to blunt it. And what happens here is in a wall really close, often habitual sin, habitual sin, is coupled with a torn, blunt conscience. Habitual sin will almost always reveal an unwillingness in some area of your life where you're compromising. And it might have been going on for years and years and you're thinking, why am I keep on reoffending? Because you can't <laughs> cope with the pain of the compromise and your conscience in an area where you've created a lesser good to justify your fear and no moving on and no dealing with stuff or no meeting or no coming to church or no standing in the truth or codependency or whatever's going on. And what happens is that because of that conscience, it creates an habitual sin in your life. You wonder where habitual sin comes from? It comes from a lack of clear conscience. Challenging, eh? So if you're wondering, oh, I've got an habitual sin, you're like, are there an area of your life where you don't have a clear conscience, but you've justified it as being a good? Maybe you've never looked at that. Maybe you think, I've never actually thought that that correlated with that. Often habitual sin is coupled with a corn blunt conscience in other areas of life because we have locked the light out. And instead of being convicted, we justify why we're doing what we're doing. I will close with a verse that hits home the point. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery for John 8. I won't get into it too much. John 8, where the woman's caught in adultery, it's, it's kind of wrongly placed in the Bible, as we know, but we'll not get into that. Uh, it should be somewhere else <laughs> in timeline. But as we know, the woman's caught in adultery and the, 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 the men are standing and all the Jews are standing. They says, we've caught this woman in the very act of adultery. 
and Jesus, and he says, this should happen, this should happen, this should happen, this should happen, and this should happen. And Jesus writes on the ground as if not here, all that speculation, he was drawing fishing on it. Anyway. It says then in verse 7 and 9, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. The other word again, Sinaiticus, convicted in their conscience. They no longer were looking outward. See, when you get convicted in your conscience, you don't look outward. See, the lack of conviction in your conscience kind of looks for an outward solution. <laughs> Take a lesser good under the guise of love. They no longer were looking outward but inward because the penetrating truth of Christ's words changed the whole situation and made them see themselves as they were. Their conscience was pierced and they could no longer disguise it. This is what the word and the truth does. But sadly, that did not mean they continued. And this is a sad tragedy. They did not. Not one of them. When Jesus says, anyone is without sin, throw that first stone. Not one. Put down the stone and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Not one of them went over to the widow and had the same on their knees and says, I'm a sinner. Every one of them left and not one of them. Here's the deal. They were convicted of their conscience but never walk towards truth. And too often in the church of Jesus Christ, you get convicted in your conscience and you walk away and you then carry shame and guilt and remorse and get into depression and into all sorts rather than walk towards Christ and ask him what must I do to be saved now that I've been convicted of this sin. They did not, they left ashamed. Isn't it amazing that none stayed? None confessed. They simply seen themselves as they were. And departed. There what it means to live in a good conscience. You see yourself as you are. And you seek God. For mercy. For forgiveness. For truth. That's where your courage. Then starts to manifest from. The conviction of our conscience. Is not for us. To go and wallow in self pity. Too many believers. Get convicted of their conscience. And go and wallow in self pity. Or reinvent themselves. But it's really for us to start to walk in truth. Because the woman was confronted with her own sin as well. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. They're sinners and you're a sinner. Is this true? This is true. Then go on your way and sin no more. With clean hands and a pure heart, we are sent to hell of God, we are pure conscience, and we don't start creating another narrative gospel. In the days that follow today, for us as a church, anything other than a clear conscience will never allow any of us in this room to stand boldly in the word as we are. You will fold at the persecution, you will fold. When your family who you're no free he starts having a meltdown. And it's with a clear conscience that you have to be convicted in that. And through guidance and love and support, pastors and elders, leaders, whoever, me, can help you navigate that. But never ever think that we'll ever be a church 
that will allow you to camp there. Never ever camp there because that's no good for the overall church. You can choose to camp there. You can choose to camp there. But we'll never endorse that, nor support it, nor no challenge it. One stops us for standing strong, another stops us for submitting graciously. What is going on in the church today? A lack of deep conviction of conscience. For many, I can't say for everybody. May that never become the case for us as individuals or a congregation. And assembling the day, does that not just sure help? And brings us together to give honour and praise to the only one that deserves the honour and all the glory and all the praise. I don't stand here as a brave man, I stand here as a man with clear conscience. That's why I'm here. And it's the clear conscience that allows us to face whatever comes. And it's the clear conscience that will allow you to have the courage and your conviction. There's so many fragile Christians because their conscience is no clear. Because they're constantly juggling their life. Amen. Thank you for joining us for our podcast here at Hope United Church. If you'd like to get in touch or for any more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk.